We're talking about the, the winds and whims of a developing market like these in clean energy. And over the last couple of years, a couple of decades that I've been working, it, it, it just can be just overwhelming. And it can literally overwhelm any effort by a CEO to sort of mechanically muscle through a business plan in these very uh, choppy competitive uh, waters. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. I run Tigercom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. In each show, we bring you usable insights on how to scale and run clean economy companies from the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful firms in your sectors. We describe this show as a podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. And for that last category, Ken Lachlan is the first we've had on the show. And there's a reason for that. Ken is the clean tech oracle you might not ever have heard of because he has the enviable combination of the ability to look around a lot of corners while staying humble. But for over three decades, he's honed his ability to observe the major developments within multiple clean economy sectors and then distill those trends for the rest of us. In fact, he's so good at it that Ken served as Impact Asset Management's North American Director. And from that perch, he co-wrote a Bloomberg New Energy Finance interim report several years back, predicting trend lines in our sectors. Those reports are the closest thing we have to religious scripture in clean tech. And it's fair to describe Ken as belonging to a small field of elite advisors and trend spotters for clean economy sectors. And with that, I want to welcome Ken to Scaling Clean. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mike. Always terrific to have a chance to, to work with TigerCon. How would you describe the arc of your career to date? In other words, how does a guy like you get to where you are now? Yeah, the situation with renewables was especially interesting uh, for me. I, I came uh, immediately prior to the work I was doing in renewables. I have been working um, in project finance in the energy sector. So I had a sense, I had some relevant skills in that sector and a sense of the kinds of challenges and the potential, frankly, of that sector. Um, but it seemed to me that there was a potential to tackle a segment of the climate change challenge by supporting the sustainable economy transformation. So we knew global economies had to transform to a more sustainable form and frame. And that was a job that I was hoping to try and help. My analysis was that the skills I had developed working in frontier markets geographically uh, were potentially applicable or deployable uh, to help in this new sector, which was global in its application, but um, required the same kinds of abilities to work across public and private finance so that you could make progress uh, both in trying to obtain to attain some commercial success, but also to be involved in this critical societal transformation. In your work tracking sectors and companies that comprised them, I imagine you've observed and met a lot of CEOs. Looking back, what qualities do the top CEOs in these sectors possess? You know, Mike, it's really, this is a, these were pioneer industries, each of the individual sub-segments of the clean energy uh, transformation. And I think that successful CEOs in those sectors 
have been able to combine a visionary leadership style with a very high degree of technical sophistication, because often these are brand new technologies that aren't routinely uh, understood by traditional uh, finance and players in particular. And they also had to have the ability to develop strong and, and in particular cross-cutting teams. So building those teams from people with, a, with disparate skill bases is a crucial requirement in a frontier market like this. They had to have an appetite for risk, of course, because it is a new market and, and risks were being taken when people, in some cases, walked away from very established traditional finance careers to do this work. But they had to be powered at the end of the day by a determination to be working for the, for the broader public good. They could make more money at Goldman doing traditional oil and gas finance, um, but it really took that, the, that ability to, to see the bigger picture in order to, that, which, that would enable them to really lead and build a team successfully in this new space, but also to build an industry successfully. Are there ways in which leading a clean economy company is different than leading companies in more mature sectors? And if yes, what are those differences? Yeah, it absolutely is the case. In a sense, as I was saying before, we're talking about different kinds of emerging markets geographic or sectoral. And so in an emerging market, it's critical to have for leadership, CEOs in particular, to have a clear and transformative vision. There's no point in leading if you're not gonna strive to achieve new things and new directions. Those CEOs had to be able to uh, craft a team, as I was mentioning, to have a, a full range of specialized skills. And especially in, in this sector, in clean energy, where you were creating a whole new industry, you couldn't just go pick off the shelf a team of people who were doing the work you needed. You had to go out and assemble those technical skills and the commercial skills and the market understanding skills and analysis and strategic planning skills from a variety of different sources and meld them together into an effective uh, team. But then, and this is really critical, the successful CEOs had to be able to read the wind, where the market and the opportunities and demands were heading them. I like to say that leadership in, in any emerging market, particularly in clean energy, is a lot more like artful tacking with the wind when you're sailing than it is like the straight line driving of an offshore powerboat. So United Airlines CEO listening to this might say, well, I have to pay attention to trends and I have to see where the industry is going. So, Ken, I'm actually not that different. Is that difference you're talking about is a matter of degrees or is it a little bit more fundamental or foundational in the difference in working in a mature sector company versus a clean economy company? I actually think, although obviously they're, they're related and people have crossed over, I think it's fundamentally different because we're talking about the, the winds and whims of a developing market like these in clean energy. And over the last couple of years, a couple of decades that I've been working, it, it, it just can be just overwhelming. And it can literally overwhelm any effort by a CEO to sort of mechanically muscle through a business plan in these very uh, choppy competitive uh, waters. I would suggest uh, to the folks at United that 
they're working in an industry which is almost 100 years old. And the conditions of that of those markets have changed and changed continuously. That's not novel. But we're talking about the creation. So the question, the, the analog to me is, if you stopped and talked to uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, how would they be designing an industry of the future to fly a bunch of people around when there was only uh, room for two on the plane? In this, these kinds of conditions, before you can lead the market, you have to read the market. And people who think they know and come in with experience or success in, in other sectors have generally not performed very well in this market. I often assert in our thought leadering here that clean economy is mostly comprised of new sectors within existing industries as opposed to a new industry. Why is that distinction important? So Google created a new industry. It created the search engine industry, so to speak. It didn't displace anything. But solar and wind are new sectors within the energy industry. And that's important because they are displacing and disrupting entrenched incumbents. To, to us as communicators, both in the Marcom realm and in the public affairs realm in particular, that has a very meaningful downstream difference in the experienced reality of these companies. But I'm interested in your views on that. Are, are clean economy sectors, are they new sectors or are they new industries? That's really important. And, and, and they are, of course, new sectors. Uh, for the most part, in established industries. I mean, there wasn't an established uh, legacy industry when Google materialized, doing what they sought to claim market share in. But obviously, if you're generating power, there. thank you very much, there's a very established industry has been doing that for a long time. The only problem is they've set fire to the atmosphere of the planet in the process, and that hasn't worked out for all of us so well. So I think that it's, it's critical to recognize uh, when you are in the creation of a new sector, which is directly competitive with legacy industries, because that means that you have to be able simultaneously to play both offense and defense. You have to create a business that's competitive and is able to uh, succeed and grow with all of the challenges associated with its technology and its market. But at the same time, you have to be fending off efforts by the legacy industry to dis directly disrupt um, or in some cases completely overturn or eliminate the entire sector alternative that you represent. And over time, you have to both be successful at playing offense and defense. Uh, and, and that includes playing the, the political games and understanding policy and influencing decision makers in the public sphere uh, because you can't just assume that your better widget is going to be able to solve this problem when somebody who had a thing that was sort of like a widget and, and more or less did the same thing but made a mess over in the back corner while it was being used uh, is trying to hang on to their business model. Ken, have you seen changes in the backgrounds of CEOs entering clean economy sectors? Yeah, there have been really significant changes. I think all of us who've been at this from the early going have seen in the last uh, quarter century. 
And uh, really what you've seen, I think overall, is that the leadership has become less technologically focused as the industry's become better established. There are a lot of uh, PhDs and researchers who were involved in the early clean energy companies, and that's much more rare now. Companies are bigger and better established. Uh, they have deeper staffs. And you're requiring a new kind of sophistication in the leadership. Um, right now, you're seeing a generation of those more seasoned commercial and industrial leaders who already have extensive corporate experience under their belts. And they're being drawn to the clean energy uh, marketplace because it's growing much faster than their industry legacy industry is. In some cases, it's a direct competitor and the clean energy industry is winning. And the prospects both for that growth potential and for having um, a, a social impact are very powerful. I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard older fossil fuel executives who are now active on the clean energy front say that their grandchildren ask them why they were involved in a business that was polluting the planet. And the answer they eventually came up with was, well, I'm stopping doing that now and going over to help with the solutions. So I think all of us have to recognize that uh, in a, in a, we're at a stage in a market where it's still early enough to, to, to accommodate pioneers and reward them, but it's late enough in the development of clean energy that we need the expertise from very established executive world-class players. If you were going to computer generate the ideal clean economy CEO, what settings on the dial pad would you, would you set? That's a really good question. Um, I think that I'd be looking at this stage in the development of the industry, I would be looking for um, relatively balanced positions on the you know, sort of midpoint positions on the technological sophistication dial, um, on the market knowledge dial, market sophistication dial, but I would be setting higher the dials that produce stronger teams from disparate players and parts. In other words, not a culture that's grown up inside itself, but people from other industries who've been brought together and can be um, hammered into uh, an effective annealed team for that company. And I would also have the, the dial set for higher sophistication and tolerance for innovation and tolerance of risk. So they have to be tolerant of continuously learning new things, not expecting to know the, uh, the technology in detail and expect that that knowledge will work for a decade at a time. But at the same time, they have to be willing to take risks that fall outside of the traditional parameters uh, because these are pioneer industries. How will the clean economy be different five years from now? We will continue to see drops in cost um, in both wind and solar in particular, and that's important. There'll be other improvements in some of the smaller, less central technologies. All of that is beneficial. The big change is going to be uh, the declines in the cost of energy storage. 
Energy storage now appears to be improving on about the trajectory that we saw with solar a decade ago, which is one of the fastest learning curves in terms of reduction in cost for a new technology that we've seen uh, in modern industrial history. So energy storage cost declines are going to be the fundamental factor, I believe, of the next decade in particular. And what that's gonna mean over that decade is you're creating a new generation of investment opportunities from, clean en from the clean energy sector generally. And that's gonna cause clean energy to move from being sort of an important incremental power source to the cost-effective 24 seven energy resource that's capable of powering the entire economy. That's going to happen. Um, the critical steps required in that transformation will take place in the, in the coming decade, I believe. As you look into the Ken Lachlan crystal ball, when do we get to renewable baseload coast to coast? That's a really good question. I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't make or take that bet because the market is still so immature that it is heavily impacted by policy factors. We, those of us who live in the, in the Washington metro area have been watching with great interest what was anticipated to be a tremendous transformation when we went from one administration with uh, very little interest in clean energy to another administration which had a tremendous commitment to clean energy. In fact, if we look at the changes at a fundamental policy level, enacted policies, new bills in place, capital deployed, there has been very little change. So the reason that's critical is because this market is, is still so young um, and because the costs uh, that the, these uh, hidden externalities that we have to deal with in the clean energy sector in order to compete with, uh, with fossil fuel powered energy generation, those um, market externalities can only be balanced out by government decision-making. So in order for you to be successful, uh, all of us to be successful in making this transformation, governments have to take an active role on behalf of their populations to protect them from the worst impacts uh, of the climate change path we're on. So we just saw just saw today that uh, NOAA is announcing that the uh, that they are expecting the this year's hurricane season to be heightened uh, over prior hurricane seasons for the seventh year in a row. I'm not sure how you can have a higher than average for seven years in a row. I think you need to work on the average, but that's the reality that we're dealing with today. So if governments decide on behalf of the American people to protect their long-term uh, financial and physical interests by taking the steps that make sense to support a clean energy economy, we could be in a position of seeing the majority of the country's um, energy come from clean and renewable uh, resources within a couple of decades, if they were really serious. Um, if there are some steps, but it's not a really serious commitment, it will take more like 40 years. And if we're on the business as usual case, uh, it'll take more than 50. I mean, it's a, the process is happening all on its own, purely commercially, but it's very slow. 
Ken, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about transmission and get your thoughts on it. Where does the transmission problem get solved the fastest? So transmission is a tremendous challenge um, because these technologies, as good as they are, are not uniformly applicable. They, they're not going to be available in every market equally effectively at the same time of the day and the same time of the year. So we need transmission uh, to support the backbone of uh, even a distributed energy system, certainly through uh, you know, the next couple of decades. So how is that transmission uh, made available? Well, that's really a, an excellent question to which the United States at least does not have a very good answer. There's a lot more attention uh, being paid inside of uh, the folks at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to think about these longer term um, issues around transmission. The industrial capability, the technology requirements are well established. There's not a challenge there. And probably the best news is that we both have companies that are superbly positioned to install massive amounts of transmission capability any place in the world. You know, the, the majors have done this work all over the world in much more forbidding locations than uh, the United States. Um, and they have the technologies to effectively move that power these days within the tolerances we need for the kind of industrial requirements we, we have. But what we don't have is a policy environment that supports the growth of that industry at the pace that we'll require. I mean, again, the, the good news is the capital available to support that activity swamps the amount, even the, the amount of capital that's required for this industry, which is huge, is swamped by the scale of capital financing. And we talked about this back even in the, in the old BNF report. So the, the, the funding is there for the work. It can be made to make financial sense, but you need to have government policies to support it because some of these transmission challenges, particularly eminent, eminent domain issues, are, are very difficult and have to be worked out um, at a, a higher level. They can't be settled town by town or county by county. Net-net, is policy or commercial execution more important to clean tech sectors at this stage of their growth? You know, the, we haven't had really supportive policy at the level that we had hoped or needed, frankly, for a, a long time. And in the absence of really supportive policy, it hasn't been a, in direct opposition, but it hasn't been deeply supportive. In the absence of that, the industry commercially has done a terrific job of evolving and developing and finding ways to be commercially competitive. And a lot of money has been made by good companies doing good work in the clean energy industry, building up an enormous industry, which dwarfs the coal industry, for example. So there is, it's important to recognize how effective we've been uh, within clean energy, but we've been effective within a relative absence of really active support on the policy side. We won't get to the level that we need to within the time frame that the IPCC is giving us without much deeper support from a public policy level. Does all this leave Ken Lachlan a climate optimist or climate pessimist? And does it leave him a clean tech 
optimist or clean tech pessimist, knowing that those two things are related but are different? So I, um, in, in both cases, I'm what's called a meliorist. I think things are gonna get better. I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, but I do believe they will get better over time. Um, I think that the technology development opportunity is, is strong and the potential is really impressive, frankly. And, the, and our capability as a society, as an industry, to meet technological challenges that are associated with the clean tech industry are going to, those challenges are going to be met. I mean, there's no question at this stage that we'll continue to meet them uh, and al at almost any level of demand that you could realistically expect. I'm much more concerned about our ability to move quickly enough to solve the climate problem. And so, you know, circling back, um, our first child um, is about to have her first child. So, you know, 30 odd years after she was born and that changed my career path, I find myself thinking about the fact that uh, her baby girl is going to be coming into a world where that challenge, that climate challenge is every bit uh, as overwhelming as it was at that point in time. I have friends that uh, attended the Rio Earth Summit uh, with me back uh, a number of years ago when all this work was being developed. And I saw one of those guys recently and said, uh, so, you know, net, net, where are we compared to where we were um, 20 or 30 years ago in Rio? And he said, um, bottom line, what was the worst case scenario then is the best case scenario now. That's how daunting the challenge is. So we all have a lot of work to do, and it's only the private sector that can get us there at the end. Let me close this incredible interview out with this question. If you were going to address a joint session of Clean Power, RE+, and InterSolar, you had the keynote address, what one to three steps would you tell the collective clean tech sectors they must do? What are the most important things they need to do that they're not already fully paying attention to? I think the industry, the clean tech uh, industry has done a pretty good job of meeting the commercial requirements that the market presented to it um, along the way. But what has been challenging for the industry, and, and so to the extent that there's an external demand placed on the industry to meet a requirement technologically or in production terms, the industry has responded reasonably well. As I said before, this is a larger problem though that can only be addressed through public policy. So what the industry has to do now is do an even better job of identifying ways to combine their interest in support of the critical policies that have to emerge and be sustained by governments in the US and globally indeed over that next 20 year period. So you see the effort, uh, Mike, you and I have been at this long enough to know that back in the day, you saw individual associations battling with each other 
uh, for allocations from Congress every time there was an energy bill brought forward and they one would snipe and try and peel off the other guy's interests. And since then, we've seen the development of organizations like the American Council on Renewable Energy that acts as a, a, a overall umbrella organization that helps combine and represent the interests of the individual uh, sectors of the industry. Finding ways to tighten that cross-industry collaboration and make the points more clear around the kinds of policies that are needed for the climate challenge to be met will be the best way to produce an environment in which the industry will thrive. It doesn't need to be looking the industry for direct support for itself as much as it needs to be supporting that overarching climate change. That arc of climate success will bend towards a successful future if all those individual organizations help reinforce policymakers' views, educate them to what can be done and what's needed, and then support them with effective execution and competitive pricing as the markets develop. Ken Lachlan, amazing. This was everything I hoped it would be. And then some, I thank you for the work you've done. You are an oracle, at least to me, I think many in the industry, and we really appreciate the clarity and depth of your views and how accessible you make them. Always a pleasure for me, Mike, and congratulations on all the great work that TigerCom has been doing. Keep it up. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom. I am Mike Casey, and I thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to our show for free anywhere you get your podcast. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.